Well, I'm, I'm going to just kind of visit a little bit with you while uh, guys are uh, receiving the offering, or the guys and gals. Um, really glad you're here today. You know, they've been talking about a lot of hype about this coronavirus, like hype and this kind of stuff. Listen, we have specialty hand gel. I don't think there's a hype to it. I paid $750 for this. Uh, <laughs> just, uh, oh, man. You know, it's just, let's just face facts, it's flu season. Uh, you know, that's what happens in flu season. How many of you got the flu shot this year? And how many of you still got the flu? Okay, some of you still got it. Uh, that's, that's just what happens. Um, we are in the, in the, in the middle of a series we're calling Life on the Brink. And, uh, if you do not, uh, are not familiar with that terminology, the brink is when you come to the edge of something and you take one step off, usually that leads to danger. And when we say life on the brink, it means that we have extended ourselves as far as we can go and that we've lost hope, we've lost, uh, uh, smarts, we've lost direction, and there's many people being pushed over the edge just by life. And uh, you can't help but pick up the paper every day, and and uh, whether you read in the national headlines or local headlines, of somebody that has been pushed over the edge, their time, uh, we just, we're an angry day. Why are we so angry? Well, it's because we're on the brink of just disaster all the time. And uh, we talked about time last week, how we've extended ourselves so much time-wise, we feel guilt and shame that we're not able to accomplish what God has for us. We have no margins. We're not back from the edge enough to be able to, for God to even use us in distractions that are out there. You know, most of God's, uh, Jesus' miracles were in what we would consider distractions, but he was walking so close with the Father, he could deal with those. Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 today. And we're going to be in verse 19 in just a moment, but I, I want to kind of paint a picture for you as we uh, as we get into this today. Um, you know, <clears throat> the the coronavirus has really created a worldwide phenomenon. We uh, we we see it, we hear about it. Many people are walking in fear uh, because of it. Uh, and, and this coronavirus is there. And listen, I don't shortchange it. There's people that have lost their lives from that, just like many people have lost their lives from the flu during this season. So I don't take it, uh, I don't take it lightly that, that this exists. Uh, I think you've got to be safe and, and you've got to take care of yourself. That's what you need to do. But, uh, and not go on a cruise right now. Uh, but the coronavirus is a big deal. But you know, there is a bigger disease that exists in our world today that is keeping people from the kingdom, from knowing Christ, from following Christ, from uh, being serious about their faith. And actually, this disease has a term in our uh, culture, and the term is affluenza, affluenza. It, in other words, it, it is a disease that comes from just an over amount of affluence. And that over amount of affluence keeps you from thinking in a rational way. Many of you will remember a few years ago, 
a young man by the name of Ethan Couch. Ethan Couch uh, was 16 years old at the time, up in Burleson, Texas. He had been drinking. He was driving, and he was driving through a neighborhood at a high rate of speed. And there was a another car that had had struggles, and some people had come, one of those to take care of the people, and one of those was a youth pastor in the Burleson area. Ethan Couch came speeding through uh, under the influence of the alcohol, ran into this situation, killing four, one of them being that youth pastor in Burleson. When they, what should have been obvious manslaughter, when they brought him up to discuss, his parents took this approach. He has affluenza. He has been enabled and entitled because of all that's been given to him throughout life. He doesn't know the boundaries and he doesn't think like everybody else because of that. In other words, the symptoms of affluenza are, here's a couple of them, numbness. You just don't think rationally. You don't feel what other people feel because of numbness. There's a lack of caring. It's all about you. You feel entitled. You feel enabled because of what you receive. Um, your self-image is in stuff. Not in who God sees you are. Not even in a, a positive self-image. Your self-image becomes what you, the stuff that you uh, accumulate. And one other symptom I read about affluenza is you have a difficulty relating reality. You can't even relate to the culture we are in because you've been entitled and enabled your whole life. And, and we're thinking, yeah, that, that kid, man, I can't believe that. But you know, this is going on in our culture all the time. We are the most affluent people on the planet. There's no doubt about it. If you don't think so, go somewhere else. Go to another, and I'm not saying go, I'm not saying it in just get out of here. That's not what I'm saying. But if you want to, if you want to know of our affluence, go check out an, another country and see what they're going through and to see the impoverished, uh, and, and, and this is what I've discovered too. I've been, uh, all over the world in different places. And what I've discovered is those that have the least are the happiest. And in our country, who is so affluent, we have pushed ourselves to the edge with debt and with our spending and the toys we get and the stuff we give. And we've lived beyond our means so much that we're on the brink of being pushed over. Thus, we're walking in uh, terrible stress all the time and anxiety because of the material uh, nature that we have. And, you know, what's interesting is evangelism, telling other people the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life message of Jesus has become difficult because of this affluenza. Because, you see, most of you are making more money than your parents made. You're living in a nicer house. You're driving nicer cars. Your, your lifestyle is one. You eat out when you want to. You do whatever you want to. You're beyond, and your needs are minimal. We, we see, you see this all the time with the people you work with, you go to school with, your neighborhood. They have no needs. And so here we come along saying, listen... All people have a need. We have a need for Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. And it hits a, hits a wall. What we've discovered is, is that we have to be there when they get the pink slip and they say they, they're no longer needed at their job. 
We need to be there when the doctor calls and says, we found a spot on your, on your lungs that may be cancerous. We need to go check it out. See, all of a sudden there's a need. But this affluenza has got us so blinded that it's keeping people from eternal life in Jesus Christ. We see it all the time. The Scriptures tell us in John 3.16, the verse, I'm going to read to you in just a minute. John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Giving is the character of God. He is a giving God because He loves and He is a generous giver. You know, when we read the New Testament, which tells us about Jesus and following Jesus, the word faith is found 254 times. The word believe is found 139 times. And everybody would say faith and belief. That, that is what we're grounded in. The word give is found 880 times in the New Testament. And the word gave is found 465 times in the New Testament. Which tells me that as a follower of Jesus, if we're going to take His character, then we need to learn how to be generous givers. If His Holy Spirit encapsulates these bodies and He comes and fills us, if we are not givers, it means we either do not know Him or we're walking in disobedience. And I'm not talking about just your finances. I'm talking about your talents, your, your resources, who you are is, is how God has given Himself and we need to be those generous givers. You can give and not be a person of love. But you cannot love and not give. It's just part of loving other people. A couple of thoughts here. To battle this enabling entitlement disease, we must learn to become generous givers. When we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Scriptures, one-sixth of the Scriptures deal with how we are to deal with the material things that we possess. So, you got to hear this. Money is neutral, okay? Money is neutral. It's, it's, we joke about it a lot. And I know, I know people have said money can't buy happiness and we'd all like to try that theory out. But, but it's, it's neutral. So if you have a lot of, of finances, praise God. If you, if you don't have much, well, you know, praise God anyway because Money in itself is neutral. How you handle it is going to be a different is going to be a different thought. How we handle money is a barometer of spiritual maturity. So how you deal with what you have shows spiritual maturity. Now let's look at the scriptures. In Matthew chapter six, verse nineteen, Jesus has been given the greatest sermon that ever existed, the greatest teaching that ever existed. And uh, it says in Matthew six nineteen through verse 24, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. If you have a King James Bible, it says mammon in there, or another version. Mammon is an uh, archaic word that stands for money and the material resources that you have. So Jesus is talking to these people. And so point number one is going to be this. Keep your heart pure. Keep your heart pure. Jesus is talking to these people about he knows that the, that the thing that's going to keep them from following the kingdom more than anything else is going to be material, earthly stuff. It's going to keep them from it. They're going to want to embrace it. They're going to let it become idols in their life. And so Jesus is attacking that idol right off the bat. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth. Literally, he's saying this. Do not treasure treasures. That's what the terminology is. Do not treasure treasures. And the reason he's talking about uh, where, where thieves break in, he's talking about a home that would have been a a mud-type home, maybe some rock, and they would be able to break out the wall and take the valuable possessions that are there. And so Jesus is encouraging these people, listen, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth because they're going to rust away, they're going to be gone. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Keep your heart pure when it comes to your uh, finances that you have. And the Scripture says this, Jesus said it earlier, the pure in heart will see God. The pure in heart will see God. It's been said before, there are three things to determine that when you look at a person, what might be the idol or the God of their life. Number one is their calendar. How do they spend their time? Number two is their credit report. How do they spend their resources? And then thirdly, their Google searches. What is the big thing that they're searching all the time? Those three things determine what a person may be worshiping at the moment. And you look at that. If you want to do an inventory, you do an inventory of that. John Wesley, the great uh, evangelist in, the, in, the, uh, in England, and he was in the United States for a time, he said this. He said, Earn as much money as you can. Yes, John, we'll go for that. And then he said, save as much money as you can. Yes. And then he said this, give as much money as you can. You know, there's something to that because John Wesley, just like Jesus as he was talking to people, knew the, the most idle prompting them would be the material resources of this world. He, was, he didn't, had no problem with earning money. He had no problem with saving money. But he really wanted to know people to know that they must give their money away. Moses, for you that are reading through the Bible in a year like many of us are, in, in Numbers and Deuteronomy, Moses kept warning the people, listen, when you come into the land and you start getting the blessing of the land, be careful that it not leads you astray from worshiping God. See, this is not a new problem. Affluenza did not begin with, with uh, Ethan Couch. 
It has been going on a long time. It was said by a, by a huge scholar, I don't know who they were, I just kind of made this up, but uh, wealth is like manure. You pile it together and it stinks, but if you spread it, it can make a big difference. And I think that's what Jesus is getting across and Moses is getting across is, listen, accumulating wealth here on earth, you know, be ready to give it. Be ready to give it. You need to be givers. I think this is an interesting illustration, and I want to I want to read it to you so you'll get it. Imagine you're alive at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South, but you are a Northerner. You plan to move home as as soon as the war is over. While in the South, you've accumulated lots of Confederate currency. Now suppose you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and the end is imminent. What will you do with your Confederate money? If you're smart, there's only one answer. You should immediately cash in your Confederate currency for U.S. currency, the only money that will have value once the war is over. Keep only enough Confederate money to meet your short-term needs. Well, that's an earthly example of where we live right now. All of us as followers of Jesus Christ believe that there's something beyond this earthly existence. Even many people who aren't followers of Jesus hope and pray. And we're going to be looking at this what's after ATX, that we're looking at heaven, we're looking at something beyond here. And yet, the things we have here are just meant for here. So, if you knew that the stuff you're accumulating is just for here, Listen, there are no hearse that are carrying U-Hauls. You came into this world with nothing, you will leave with nothing. I remember playing a game with Pam and the grandkids, and we had played this board game, and Pam had to go cook, and the kids, the game had ended. I won the game. The kids had dispersed, and there I am putting everything back in the box. And you know, that's what happens. It all goes back in the box. And so you have to ask yourself, where am I storing? Where am I investing? And I believe it's huge that you invest in the kingdom. So keep your heart pure. Number two is this. Keep your eyes clear. Notice in verse 22, it's a strange thing for us, but it says the eye is the lamp of the body. Well, what does that mean? The lamp is literally window. It's the window to the soul. And it says if your eye is healthy. Now let me explain what healthy means. Healthy means single focused. In fact, the old terminology in the King James, I think, was keep your eye single. It means have a single focus. And it doesn't mean necessarily that you need uh, vision or you need, you're nearsighted or anything, something like that. Keep your vision single. Keep your eye healthy, single focus. And what Jesus says, keep your eye on the kingdom. He's going to say in a little bit before this chapter is over, seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And so you need to keep your eye single. And then he says this. He says, but if your eye is unhealthy, and he's not talking about cataracts. He's not talking that. He's saying double vision, basically. You're no longer single focus, but you have double vision, almost like those lizards, you know, that has one eye here, one eye here, and it's looking different direction. But, but he's saying this, because the temptation is going to be there 
To gaze upon the world and let it take your focus off of Christ. And so we need to have our gaze on Christ. We do not bury our heads in the sands. We do get a glimpse of what's going on in our world. We don't turn a blind eye to that. But yet we keep our gaze upon Christ. I've got a uh, uh, a penny in my pocket. And uh, it's just your basic penny that we just walk over every now and then. We, we don't pick them up anymore. We just let them go because we think a penny is not worth anything. And so that's what we do with it. I take this penny, and if I'm looking at the exit sign back there, I'm looking at the back door, I hold that penny out here, you know, I can see exit sign fine, I see the uh, the doors fine, I see outside fine, but you know, if I take shut one eye and bring that penny right here, it completely blocks out my vision from being able to see anything. And what's happening with us is that we have made our material stuff idle so much that it's right here blinding us and it blinds us from seeing where the Lord has taken us and where our focus is. So what Jesus is saying here is, listen, keep your eyes clear. Keep those eyes clear. One last thing, one last point is this. Keep your devotion true. Keep your devotion true. Notice verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, you will be devoted to one and despise the other, you cannot serve both God and money. I was thinking, you know, we do not have a master and slave uh, mentality anymore. Back in those days, the Romans had all kinds of slaves. People had all kinds of slaves, and they did all their work for them and these kind of things. Uh, we do not have so much a view of that, even though in Paul said, Paul the follower of Jesus in Romans, his letter to Romans chapter 6, he said that uh, we are slaves to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us have a master, something we serve. And I started thinking about that. I thought, what, what is another master we may serve other than the Lord Himself? Well, one is our material stuff, finances. But you know, another one is our jobs. We, we seem to worship our jobs. And then when that job is taken away or something, we, we uh, really find ourselves in a hard place. Uh, another one is sometimes we put our family uh, as our master's. And, and uh, our, our school or our relationships or whatever it may be. But, but what the Lord Jesus is saying here is, listen, you cannot have two masters. You cannot have two people calling the shots here. If you've got multiple people calling the shots, you're not going to get anywhere. You've got you've to focus. Let me be your master. No longer a slave to sin, a slave to righteousness. And, and these other things may be important, but let, don't let them be master of your life. Um, and here's the question. Do you manage your material goods or do they manage you? Who owns you? Do you manage your material goods or do they manage you? Um, Pam and I and our family lived in a house over in Egger Acres for 20 years. And then we moved out to where we live now uh, 15 years ago. When we, 20 years is a long time. You know, 15 years is a long time. 20 years was a long time, and we finally were going to move. And so I go up into the attic and start getting stuff out of the attic. You can accumulate a lot of stuff in 20 years, especially in a hidden way in an attic. And I found this box, and I pulled the box down. I'm I'm kidding you not. We've been married uh, 41 years on Tuesday. And uh, I, I, I pulled out this box, 
And uh, there were checks in there from before I was married to Pam. And uh, I started looking at some of those checks. I found the check that I bought her wedding ring. Uh, man, I didn't pay. To, I bought her another one since then that cost a lot more. <laughs> but I found that check. But I found some other checks to uh, First Baptist Church that, of Waco. That's where I uh, worshipped at. And uh, they, the checks were in there. And uh, they were what we call tithe checks, giving checks, offering checks to uh, the church. And I remember, and, and then there's all the checks when we got married. We got married in 1979, so there was a lot of checks in there. And uh, I remember when we first, we grew up in homes that uh, taught us the importance of giving to the church and, and uh, that we don't own it. God owns it, and we were supposed to do that. And so we we grew up in that, but we got married. And let, let me tell you, we're both going to school. We're both making minimal wage, uh, I guess, living in a du- little duplex, trying to make it. Sometimes there would be, it seemed like, more month than money. But yet, this was this was in us. And so I remember certain times we would write those checks to, to church, and uh, just say, God, you're going to have to do something. And, and we, we would do the tithe, the Old Testament principle of 10%. You know, given, given that, man, there would probably be some sweaty uh, palms as Pam wrote it or I might write it, and, uh, and we would give it to the church. And, you know, God always honored that, and, he, he, and He's honored that ever since. But, but we started growing in our faith. And, you know... Old Testament, a 10% tithe. But you start reading the New Testament and you can't fight the truth that God owns it all. It, not, just, not just 10%. He owns it all. And so if you take the principle here, he, he owns it all. We're but managers. We're but money managers and stewards of what He has given us. So we, we, now our mindset changes. We give the first fruits knowing that all 100% is His. The 90% He allows us to live on. Thank You, Lord, for blessing us the way You have. And we discovered that 90% with us and God is more than 100% of just us. We have learned that God has blessed us immensely in that. And I know some of you say, Mark... I, I really want to be obedient uh, in that particular area. You know, this is the only thing that God said, test me on. Test me on this. The book of Malachi says, test me on this and see if I won't come through. We're so afraid to test God in this. We would rather depend on our own strength than to depend on Him. And yet, we see this in the Scriptures that if we're going to be these generous givers, then this is what God has called of us. We have to keep our devotion true. We have to honor the One who gave His life for us. Keep your heart pure. Keep your eye clear. Keep your devotion true. People wonder about wealth and following the Lord. Uh, I, I, man, I think I like what Wesley said. He, he said, uh, you know, earn it, save it, give it. And I love 
most people that God has blessed financially are incredible givers, and, and so I appreciate that so much because I, I'm afraid that if I had an inordinate amount of money, I would not be the giver. And so God knows that, and so I always appreciate that. And in the Scriptures talk about uh, uh, people that had money that they used. One was, lady, quick history lesson. You make a care less unless you're doing trivia. But there was a lady by the name of Phoebe, okay? Phoebe was in, when, when Paul wrote his letter to the Roman church, he sent that uh, to a lady named Phoebe who was a business lady who was wealthy, and he wrote the letter. She was probably funding a lot of Paul's activity. He gave her the letter, and she took the letter down to Rome as a female business leader to go and to be able to deliver that letter. Pretty cool. I mean, Phoebe exists. There was another one by the name of Theophilus. Theophilus was the funder behind Dr. Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, so that he could go do all of his research. And so Theophilus was the one that, that uh, paid for that. And so it's incredible to see how these wealthy people... I want to tell you about one other. This isn't in Scripture, but... How many of you have ever heard of Humphrey Monmouth? Not if you were in the early service, don't don't raise your hand. But how many of you have ever heard of Humphrey Monmouth? Probably none of you. How many of you ever heard the name William Tyndale? You've probably heard of the name of William Tyndale. William Tyndale, you would not have your Bible today if it was not for William Tyndale. William Tyndale is the one, you see, in the early 1500s, the Scripture had been translated into Latin, but not into English. And so people, uh, the common person could not read the, the Bible. And so William Tyndale uh, started to translate the Bible into English so the common man could read the Bible. The Church of England did not like that, and they were going to eventually put William Tyndale to death for this. But in the meantime, Humphrey Monmouth, who was a wealthy man who had a fleet of ships that went all over the known world to them at that time, Humphrey Monmouth funded William Tyndale's work and he took the Bibles in English and he took them all out in his fleet of ships. And today, you and I have a copy of the Scriptures that we can read because of William Tyndale, yes, but because of Humphrey Monmouth who was willing to fund a worldwide campaign to get the Scriptures out. Humphrey Monmouth. You don't know about him, but you would not have your Bible today in the English if it wasn't for Humphrey Monmouth. Listen, that's just a small picture of how God wants to use what we have to expand His kingdom around the world. Listen, we're all going to check out of here one day. There was a man that went to his pastor and he said, Pastor, when I was making 30000 a year, it was a lot easier to give and now I'm making 200000 a year and I find it difficult. What should I do? And the pastor said, well, first thing is to get rid of $170,000 and then you will be free to give again. You know, we, we think our, our world revolves around material stuff. But many people are on the brink because of debt and uh, living beyond their means, and they're out here, and when they think about giving to kingdom things, they can't even 
doing. Next week, we'll talk a little bit more about getting off the edge and getting some margin in your life. But today, I just want to challenge you in this thought about who owns your stuff. Do you own it or does it own you? Thank you.